often at weddings that's sung, and in communion that is sung. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. What are we in? What are we looking at? Old Testament. Kind of fun stuff, isn't it? Some really good stuff there. Uh, this series started out, first of all, as an attempt to look at the world out of which Jesus came, because next fall we'll be looking at Jesus' ministry. And that's really from the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 on down. But realizing that you really can't tell that story without the backstory. So that's what we've been doing. And today we're actually going to finish that story. Um, because next week we'll actually get to destruction. Uh, by the way, if you, from the biblical perspective and even from a modern Jewish perspective, if you want to know what the good old days were for, for Jews, it was the reign of King David and King Solomon. So today we'll be looking at that, that, that period of time. Uh, we're going to pick up the story with the uh, story of King David. He's roughly, uh, give or take a few years, about 1000 BCE. And we're going to take the story down to the end of the state of Israel in 586, where Israel, as an entity, is exterminated, taken off the map, ceases to exist, never comes back. What comes back 70 years later will be a distinctly different entity, which means we're covering roughly how many years? We had better trip the cle the clip the treetops only, you know. Uh, we want to do some archaeology. We want to look at stuff, but, but we won't cover everything. We just simply can't. Uh, we're going to look at three periods. We're going to look at the United Kingdom under David and Solomon uh, because Saul was never king of the southern kingdom. Saul was only the king of the northern kingdom. So David is the one who's going to unite the two. So there's really only two kings that, that had it. Then we're going to have a couple hundred years where you have two kingdoms side by side. You've got the 500-pound gorilla, Israel in the north. It's got the most people, the most land, the most wealth. It is dominant. Down below, you got this little group called Judah. Uh, tell their history. And then after Israel uh, is taken off, the northern kingdom, we have another 150 years, roughly, where Judah stands alone. And so today, we want to tell that story. The story of David as king is narrated in 2 Samuel. And the book of 1 and 2 Kings then narrate the remainder of the story. By the way, just remember, if you don't know this already, uh, the division of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second uh, Samuel is arbitrary. Those were originally uh, one books each. Matter of fact, there was an old joke about the monk who divided these up. He was writing on the. Have you heard this story about the monk? That how did we get chapters and verses in the Bible? You heard that story? Because they weren't there. They're not in any of the original manuscripts. So how do we get chapters? How do we get verses? And sometimes chapters and verses split in the middle of a sentence. What is that about? You know, and then we split books and the split between first and second Kings makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, here's the story. A little monk was drunk. <laughs> so you want to start the story. He's riding on the mule. Every time he hit a little bump, that's a verse. Every time he hit a big bump, that's a chapter. Every time he fell off, and had to get back up. That's a new book. OK, so <laughs> that's an old story about that. Some historians remember the minimalists. Uh, Minimalist is a school of history which says unless we can absolutely document it historically, unless we got some hardcore archaeology to back it up, it didn't happen. You just, you know, if you can document it, fine. Otherwise, don't deal with it. So in the 1970s and in the 1980s and early 1990s, it was very common in, in biblical history books to hear essentially that David never existed. Any of y'all remember that? And that uh, because there was no evidence, 
Zip, zero, nothing. They had not been able to find one actual archaeological relevant fact or factoid that, that contributed that. Now, that is until 1993, when the landscape shifted. It shifted up here in the north. Matter of fact, this last trip to Israel, we went up there. I did not know. You think of Israel, you think of desert, right? Uh-uh, not up north. It's a Garden of Eden. I mean, waterfalls and streams and rivers and forests and verdant fields and all that. And that's where Dan is. Um, and then up there is this city. It was the northern, uh, northernmost uh, major metropolitan area in this. And in 1993, they were excavating there, and they discovered what is known as the uh, Tell Dan inscription. And so this is half of it. And they, if somebody just did you a favor, they took a little chalk. Da, 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 D, V, D. Now, who's that remind you of? In Hebrew at this time, there are no vowels. The vowel points are added by the Masoretes many, many centuries later. So it's just constant. Something of David, okay? The inscription is from 800 B.C. It is made by the king of Aram. Figure Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, Damascus, uh, who boasts, I killed Azahlahu, king of Joram, king of the house of David. And all of a sudden, the minimalist bit the dust. Okay, and there was a big fervor out there. It's like, ooh, we documented it. There is actually some documentation. Now, about that time, somebody said, now, now wait a minute. That sounds vaguely familiar. There's this Mencia Stella in Egypt. Uh, it's also from the 800s B.C. It's an inscription by the Moabite king Mencia. Uh, so the stella was discovered in 1868 and is laying in some museum and receives zip attention. None. It's just there. You know, it's not in any articles. Nobody's writing about anything until they discovered the Tel Dan stella. And I said, oh, that occurs somewhere else. So the mention inscription refers no less than three times to David, 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 house of David, and specifically names the king, Israelite king, Omri. So we have not one, but two independent non-Israelite archaeological discoveries which confirm that the house of David did in fact uh, exist. Um, and this is by neighboring kings. This is a model of David's kingdom which is quite expansive which makes you wonder how in the world did he ever get a kingdom that big? Down in the south and to the west who was the one that would be nibbling at him? Egypt. Egypt. To the north and to the east who would be nibbling at him? whatever the power of the week is, you know, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, all those kinds of things. Uh, David comes to power at a unique time in history. Both of the regional powers are in eclipse. They're in decline. Egypt has collapsed, and therefore it's doing good just to hold on to itself. And also in Mesopotamia, basically uh, uh, the, ki the kingdom of Aram is in decline, and the kingdom of Assyria has not yet uh, come up. And this allows David in that window to basically advance unopposed relative there's no major no major obstacle he unites the northern and southern kingdoms he then does something that's strategically brilliant he chooses for his capital a city that is neither israelite nor judean well that's is that smart you're going to unite two kingdoms we're going to get jealous where are you going to put your capital let's seize a city that the Canaanites have had. Joshua didn't take it. Remember, we looked at that last week. 
and it's the, the city of Jerusalem, a very ancient city. Uh, then he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, again, strategically brilliant. What does the Ark of the Covenant symbolize for the people of Israel? God. God's presence. Okay. We're going to deal with today whatever happened in the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, we think we know. Uh, Jerusalem is a city-state before David. So David's taking of Jerusalem. Remember, until this point, they're not a member of uh, the, the way the Egyptians referred to them, the Israelites. They're not a nation. What are they? People. Bedouin. Wanderers. You know, wandering Armenians. He takes the capital. He makes it his capital. And this is a fundamental change because we now move from a loose confederation of tribes. We are now, for the first time in our history, a nation state, just like any other place out there. For the first time, Israel has a capital. It has a walled city. It has a professional standing army, which they did not have earlier. And it's got, you've got to love this, taxes. <laughs> You're going to get a government. What are you going to get? You're going to get some taxes. That's going to play a key story with Solomon. Uh, key elements. Remember the Nathan the prophet? Interesting thing about prophets. They appear to be connected to kings. Prophets arise when kings start. Prophets vanish when kings end. The purpose of a prophet most of the time appears to be to stand before the king and deliver God's message to the king, to those who rule. Uh, particularly in times of crisis. So we're going to see just before the first major crisis, when the northern kingdom is destroyed, we have the first four prophets, writing prophets, appear. Simultaneously almost. Isaiah, Amos, Micah, Hosea. Then for 100 years, not much, 150 years, and then right before the southern kingdom of Judea is taken off the map, Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah, Nahum, and another bunch. So these prophets appear to come at the strategic point. Remember the Davidic covenant? Do you remember the difference between the Noah covenant and the, the Moses covenant and the Davidic covenant? We ever talked about that? Uh, Moses, uh, Noah, the Noah's covenant is made to all humanity. The Moses covenant is made to Israel. The Davidic covenant is made to the house of David and says three times, one of your descendants shall sit on the throne forever. And the word forever is mentioned three times in that passage. So this becomes the difficult. Then we have the famous David and Bathsheba story. And by the way, she's a foreign woman. That's one of the major themes of the Bible. Uh, David turns out is an adulterer and a murderer. Very clear in that story. Uh, we have the birth of Solomon. Abs we have Absalom's rebellion and death. A very tragic scene. The altar is built, but David is not allowed to build the temple because of yeah, because of his adultery, because of his crimes. We have two views of the Davidic covenant. Now, it, it, this is true often in the Bible. We'll read one passage, and we kind of got one view. But if you're going to look at the Bible, uh, and by the way, uh, this is what the historically our faith has said. What is authoritative for the church is not your favorite verse, okay? I, I hate that. You know. <laughs> I've got my four or five favorite verses. What is authoritative for the people of God is the Bible as a whole. So anything you like must be read in context of the Bible. <coughs> As a whole, makes sense? Okay, we're going to take one of these issues and look at it as a whole. We got two views of the covenant. One is that the covenant made with David, this is the Nathan passage, is unconditional. David, you can be a moral pig, and you will not, the covenant will stand. You can be an adulterer, 
You can be a murderer. You can be unfaithful. You cannot believe in God. And the covenant stands. There's another attitude in the Bible that says, David, not so much. The covenant will stand only if. Okay? And it's conditional. Here's the, here's the unconditional one, Samuel. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall be made uh, sure forever for me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with his vision, Nathan spoke. Uh, and this becomes the basis then for messianic hope. You don't have to, you don't expect a Messiah. Messiah simply is anointed, a king. A uh, high priest can be anointed, but mostly it's the king. You don't look forward to a king anointed Messiah if you've got one, right? You want one if one's missing. So when the destruction comes and the king's carried off into exile and we have some Babylonian records that say he did live for at least 37 more years. But the king, the, the family of David, just kind of vanishes. So if the, can, the, king, if the, uh, the David family vanishes and you've got this promise, what are you going to start looking for? Somebody of the house of David. Do you remember in the, the Mary and Joseph story? What is Jesus? Of the house and the lineage of David. Okay, this is part of that, that backstory. Others did not agree. Here's the uh, opposing view. If, this is to David, if your sons keep my covenant and my decrees, which I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. If. And if you don't, null and void. Solomon's kingdom. Solomon is the second kings 1 through 11. Uh, we have at the beginning, remember that's that, that wonderful dream he has? And what, you know, what would you ask for? And he asked for wisdom. Uh, and we have the, then we have a story of the, uh, an example of that wisdom where you have two mothers want one baby. And so Solomon apparently knows that if he offers to divide the baby, the real mother would not go for that. Okay. And he can identify that. So it's a story of his wisdom. Uh, Queen of Sheba, not only beautiful, what was her other characteristic? Extraordinarily rich and wealthy. Uh, and so Solomon's wealth is compared to her. There's the building of the temple. David can't build the temple, but Solomon does. Now, once the temple is built, two incredibly important things happen, and they're just they're interesting. I just never knew this until recently. First of all, the temple replaces the law. I did not know that, did you? But it's real clear in, in the biblical text. And we see this symbolism. For example, here's Exodus, okay? In the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. What is thunder? And the click, thick cloud. Thunder, lightning, thick cloud is a symbolism for God's presence, okay? Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. We got thunder, we got lightning, we got smoke. God's here. Let's march out. We're going to see God. Isaiah 4 through 5. Now, Isaiah, writing during the period we're talking about, he's writing about 750 to 730, somewhere in there. Uh, the Lord will create all over Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? Well, that was Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. A lot of mountains. It gets confusing. Mount Zion, also sometimes called Mount Moriah in the tradition, is in Jerusalem. It's the highest place. It's where they built the temple. So Zion becomes a euphemism for temple that later becomes a euphemism for Jerusalem. It's where God dwells. 
and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. So now where does God reside? In the temple. Okay. God was on Mount Sinai. God traveled with the, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant moves into the temple, so God now resides. And the, the Jewish people this time literally thought that was literal. So we get this, what's called Zion theology, which is basically is God dwells in Jerusalem in the temple, and therefore God would never allow anything bad to happen to Jerusalem or the temple. Not true, but it's great theology. Okay, out of Zion, God shines forth. Okay, so God now resides there and God shines out. Okay, the temple also replaces the Ark of the Covenant. Let me be blunt. The second the Ark of the Covenant enters the temple, the Ark of the Covenant is irrelevant. Make sense? Let's see why. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is not mentioned for the not once in the next 400 years after it goes in the temple. Why? We have the temple. And that's where God resides. The Ark a.k.a. box, was the box that God was in from Mount Sinai to the temple. Once God's in the temple, do you need the box? And that, that, that literally is the kind of thinking that's going on here. It's mentioned for the last time in the reign of Joshua, a few years before the destruction of the temple, if the ark still existed, and this is a thing scholars kick around, if it's not been taken by previous raids, because we know that more than once it got captured, the Israelites had a very bad habit. They would take the Ark of the Covenant into a battle, which is great if you win. If you lose, not so great, because the Philistines carded, and then they can't win a battle. Uh, by the time of Jeremiah, I had not really seen this scripture before, and it's an amazing scripture. By the time of Jeremiah, the Ark of the Covenant is irrelevant. And it has absolutely no value. Follow these words. Uh, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, you're in Palestine now. In those days, says the Lord, you shall no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. Ouch. That's an interesting. Nor shall another one made why if you have the temple you don't need the ark of the covenant God has gotten a much larger house at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord before the ark of the covenant remember the seraphim the angels and the wings the belief was that God existed in the gap between the wings God is not physical so God existed in this space. That was the throne of the Lord. Now what's the throne of the Lord? It appears to be the temple. Jerusalem by extension. Okay. Originally. And, and, and uh, Joseph's, I mean, uh, Moses' staff and the terrifying, you know, there were several items in there originally. We don't know. What we know is the ark seems to vanish. Literally and figuratively. It does. What? Oh, no, 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 no. Quite the contrary. The law and the law and the Ten Commandments are not the same thing. Yeah. What's what's happening is you started with the Ten Commandments. Now you have Torah, which is this expanded 
And we're going to look at the second Deuteronomy, which apparently is a version of the law from the northern kingdom from up there. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, here's what's interesting. And we know it would have been listed. By the way, we have not only the Bible, we have the Babylonian records. We have the Babylonian records, archaeology, of what they carried into Babylon. And we have the records that were of what was sent back. And the Ark of the Covenant is not mentioned in what went. And it's not mentioned in what came back. And a lot of stuff less significant is mentioned. What does that tell you? Wasn't taken. Why was it not taken? Well, that is a kind of an interesting way of spawning a bunch of literature. For example, Second Esdras, which is in the Catholic Bible, not in ours. It's in our Apocrypha says it was taken by the Babylonians. Now, in their records, the Babylonians don't list it among the stuff they took, but never mind. Second Ezra thinks it did. Second Maccabee says, well, no. You remember Mount Nebo where Moses looked over at the Promised Land? Prophet Jeremiah, and apparently there's some tradition, he took it and he hid it on top of Nebo. Now, some of us were at Mount Nebo last year. We didn't find it, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, this one's my favorite. The Mishnah Torah... Did you know that underneath this, the Temple Mount there are miles of tunnels? I did not know that. Uh, Solomon Stables, the Western Wall Tunnel, all that kind of stuff down there. This is an amazing picture. Uh, when you go down the Western Wall Tunnel, which runs like a thousand yards along one deal, about 70 feet down, you pass an area where you get all these people, uh, and what they're doing is they're praying. And if you, this is above it is the Wailing Wall. 70 feet up is the Wailing Wall. What are they doing? Well, they're following this tradition of the Mishnah Torah, which says that it was hidden inside the Temple Mount. They believe that it's still there, and so they're praying at the place that physically is the closest they can get. And there's a whole tradition within Judaism of that. Um, now, in spite of the grandeur, Solomon's kingdom does not survive. He sowed, and the, the biblical narrative is real clear about this, Solomon undid himself. The decisions that Solomon made made it inevitable that his kingdom would not survive his death. Uh, taxes. Where's most of the wealth? Up north. So who are you going to tax? Up north. Where's the money going to flow? Where the capital is? Down south. Does this make people happy campers? No. Uh, Solomon's wives. Uh, a thousand, give or take? Now, his libido is not that strong, okay? <laughs> just, just know that. Treaties. I marry your daughter, and I'm guaranteeing that if you attack me, I can kill her, and I want, you know, so he make treaties. He has concubines and stuff. So, but what one thing it says he did is he allowed them to bring their own gods and to worship. So we have there in Jerusalem this. And so the Bible is very, very critical of that. Two kingdoms. The schism occurs. We have chapter 12 and 13. After Solomon's death, his son calls for an assembly at Shechem, which is up north, because that's where everybody lives. And we have the revolt of Rehoboam and the northern tribes because somebody tells Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, um, they're going to ask for some tax relief. This, you know, they want to play the Tea Party card, okay? But don't do it. You've got to be a strong king. You've got to be a strong Tell them you're going to tax them all the more. Now, is that particularly good advice? No, and it, it produces a disaster. We have a schism that's uh, both political in which 90-something percent of the land secedes. Okay, Most of it's in Israel. 90-something percent of the population and most of the wealth. By the way, what, what 
the Judeans get left is primarily desert, some olive fields and some dates. Where is all the wonderful agricultural land? Up north, Mount Hermon up there. Uh, it's also religious because we have in Jerusalem, we've got a temple. Now, if we're going to succeed, what do we need up north? We need a temple. Now, one of the interesting things is the north had a bunch of temples, five or six. But Bethel becomes the Jerusalem of the north. And so they set up a temple there. The northern kingdom is clearly dominant. It has everything that really matters. They're going to exist side by side for two years in internecine warfare. You know, Judah will invade Israel. Israel will invade Judah. Uh, and, and it's like the Arabs and Israel today. Neither one can push the other one off the map. But they kind of go back and forth. So a lot of enmity there. Uh, meanwhile, while they're tied up in this little skirmish with each other, Egypt now has a pharaoh that's a strong one. And this new king has emerged up in the, uh, the Syrian area who is forming something that will be called the Assyrian Empire. And they both start marching. Bad time to be bickering with each other. This is probably the time they want to get their act together, but they don't do it. Interesting thing. Right at this point in history when there's a crisis, we have the first true prophets emerge. Remember Elijah and his disciple Elisha. This is from Elijah and Elisha coming around 850 B.C. They're both active in the northern kingdom. Uh, Elijah's ministry is 17 to 22. Remember the contest at Mount Carmel, the 400 prophets of Baal. And there's a contest. My God wins. Your God loses. He then journeys to Horeb because the queen uh, Jezebel said she will kill him. And he's a real brave guy. So he runs to Sinai or Horeb. And there he experiences God. He calls Elisha. We have a Syrian war, not a Syrian Damascus, Syria. It's interesting. Today we have Damascus as the capital of Syria. And 2,800 years ago it was the same thing. Nabus Vineyard. Uh, the king wants the vineyard. And so his wife talks him into, well, if you just kill the guy, you won't have to pay. And it, it's, a, it's a horrible story. But then the, the, the prophet Nathan confronts the king. Uh, or the prophet confronts the king. Elijah's taken up in the fire chariot. We have a lot of interesting things here where Elijah is depicted kind of as a, as a, as a reincarnated almost Moses figure. Uh, they both part the waters. They both build an altar. Both are instructed to appoint a successor. Both die east of the Jordan. Both experience the Theophany at Mount, Mount Horeb. So part of the way the story is just told is that there, there's some parallels. Both spend 40 nights and 40 days in the mountain. Elijah journeys to the cave where Moses saw God's back. And there God is real to him. So the stories are intentionally parallel. Then we get Elisha. What's interesting about Elisha is if you study the ministry of Jesus, forget Elijah. Elisha is the one. Jesus raised the dead, right? So did Elisha. Jesus healed. So did Elisha. You just kind of run down. The ministries of Jesus and Elisha are very, very similar. Hmm? Um, you've got, let us build three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and who was the third? It's escaped me. Moses would be symbolic of the law. Elijah would be symbolic of the prophets. So the, the deal is there, 
is you've got, you know, they, they've got a symbol of the law in front of them. They've got the symbol of the prophets. And I forget what the third one is. Uh, what? Who? I forget. It's not, it's not another prophet. But it's almost like the law, the prophets, and the writings. So what we have there is the Jewish faith and the main characters of our tradition. And they want to build booths. What does that mean? They want to worship at that altar. And what does the voice from heaven from God say back to them? This is my son. Listen to him. In other words, don't pay attention to Moses and the prophets and the Jewish tradition. Your faith is now based on Jesus of Nazareth. And that seems to be the, the symbolic gist of that story. Because what's just happened before that story in the Gospels is that Jesus said the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the head of sinners, he will be crucified, and the third day he will be risen. He said that three times. And three times they say, uh-uh, ain't happening. Nope, 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 that's not in our plan. That's not the way we see things going. And now the voice of God says, listen to him. And they come off the mountain, and where's the next place they go? into Jerusalem okay so symbolically it's pretty clear what that story is about it's a very very powerful story miracles of Elisha are parallel you've got the raising of the uh, widow's son you've got the multiplication of the loaves you've got the healing of lepers you've got a lot of good kings bad kings it's really interesting in in the book of kings when you're deciding if a king is good or bad by the way in the book of kings not one Israelite king is listed as good what does that tell you about where it was written? That's what scholars think, you know. And only two kings in the south are good, okay? But it's interesting how they assess this because it often runs contrary to the historical record. For example, Manasseh. You just want to spit when you say his name. The most abysmal, horrible, according to kings we ever had. He's probably the best political king they ever had. He built the empire back up almost to where David had it. So politically, he was good. He was a good political king. He was a good leader. He ran a good business. But religiously, what was he? All kinds of gods coming in. So for the writer of kings, what do you base the judgment on? Not his political acumen. You base it on what he does religiously. Uh, we've got some doublets with Elijah and Elisha. We'll just skip through that real quick, but they're, they're interesting if you want to kind of read those. Now, this gets interesting. All of a sudden, for the first time, with Elijah and Elisha, we have something new we've never seen before. Until this point, it's real clear that the God of Israel is the God of Israel. It's a parochial God. It's a national God. This is not the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay? After the exile, we get for the first time the language of Lord in heaven and earth. Is there a difference between the God of Israel and Lord of we see that happening for the first time when God says to Elijah and Elisha, go, leave the country, go into this country, and anoint this person to be the king of that country. And there's nothing Jewish, nothing Israelite about it. Okay. In other words, is God just operating in the borders of Israel? God is beginning to move beyond that. Uh, we begin to see oracles against the nations, and those, those are incredibly boring, incredibly gory, you know, it's just kill, 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 kill. What's interesting about them is, is that they're, they're, they're involving not just the Jewish people, but all the people in the area. First four writing prophets appear right now. 
Uh, first one appears to be Amos, who goes up to Bethel and critiques the temple and critiques the king. And you know he got a really warm welcome for doing that. Uh, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah, all active. By the way, they are active as this juggernaut Assyria is starts just marching down and coming down. Uh, they are the first to explicitly address the view that God is the God, not just of Israel, but beyond that, and that expands, um, which we're moving towards monotheism. We also have a new view of sin. Until this point, if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the, the, the law there, here's kind of get the idea you get. Sin is primarily against God, right? And it's, it's often cultic. You know, if you don't do the sacrifice just right, if the priest doesn't do it just right, then that's sin. All of a sudden, when Amos walks on the field and says, I hate your potluck dinners, this is speaking for God, and everything that you do in your church stinks because you don't care for the needy and you don't care for the poor and you don't care for the oppressed. And I, your God, don't give a flip about religion. I, your God, care about the poor and the needy and the oppressed. That's the book of Amos. Uh, social issues come to the forefront. Now, Amos is the one that always gets quoted. So I thought you might hear it from Isaiah. This is God's voice speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've just about had enough of your burnt offerings, you know, and the fat of your fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of lambs, uh, bulls, or of lambs, or goats. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And you're thinking, okay, ritually, I go and I do all the ritual kind of stuff. No. Remove the evil from the doings before us. Now, how do you do this? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There's a sermon. Okay. That's the prophetic voice coming out, you know. We even get a radical idea that maybe, just maybe, God never wanted sacrifice even before the temple was built. Now, that's not what the narrative says, but look at Amos. This is God speaking. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings the 40 years you were in the wilderness? The, the, the rhetorical answer is, of course he did. It's what the narrative says, okay? O house of Israel. Uh, but there it's obviously not. Jeremiah 7. For in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifice. Yes, you did. That's what's in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But here we have a prophetic voice saying, that's not what God wants. God wants what? Justice. Let it roll, as Amos says, like a, like a, like a great stream. Uh, they also counsel the king to stay out of politics. By the way, this is an actual carving from the Assyrian king. And these are Israelites impaled on the tips of spears. Okay. Uh, and the, the counsel of the prophet was, stay out of this politics. Don't rebel against these kingdoms. And there was a good reason for that. 722, the era of the two kings is coming in. Assyria comes in, does this kind of stuff. The leaders are taken into exile. We want to look at this next deal just real quickly because it's crucial to what follows. Um, we bring in others. This is recorded in the annals of the Assyrian king Sargon. So this is the Assyrian king Sargon's own words. In the beginning of my reign, the Samaritans. Now, who are the Samaritans? This is not the Samaritans in the New Testament. That's 800 years in the future. Who lives in Samaria? The northern kingdom of Israel, 
Their capital town is called Samaria. That's where the word comes from. In the beginning of my reign, the Samarians, the northern king of Israel, who agreed with another hostile king, the king of Aram, Syria, not to continue their slavery and not to deliver tribute, I fought with them and defeated them, 27,280 people who lived therein. This is both kingdoms, not just Israel. And their chariots I carried off as spoil. The rest of them I settled in the midst of Assyria. The city of Samaria I resettled. I made it greater than before. People of the lands conquered by my own hand I brought there. My courier I placed over them as governor. So you got the elites. The leaders are deported. You got foreigners being brought in to replace them. And this raises that very famous issue. What about what happened to the lost tribes of Israel? You ever heard that term? The ten of Did you know they weren't lost? <laughs> it, it's a myth. We didn't lose them, you know. Historically, archaeologically, it turns out that the ten northern tribes being lost is in fact a myth. We know from the archaeology, especially the last 20 or 30 years that the vast majority of the people remained in the land. They never left, and they remained Jewish. Okay? You don't take everybody, because what are your farmers? They're the tax base. People don't have gold. What do they have? Crops. And if you take all the people away, what have you just destroyed? Your tax base. Is that a smart thing to do? No. Who rebelled? Not the farmers. So it's people in the cities. Take them out. Bring your own people to run it. Keep the tax base intact. So about 40,000 are taken into exile by the Assyrians. That sounds like a huge number until you realize that archaeologists now know that is less than 10% of the population. Stratigraphy. This is the most excavated place in the world, Israel. 90% are left, those who were not taken. Of them, another 80,000 of those who remained fled to the southern kingdom. Was that a smart move? I'd be going south. I'd be going real south real quick, you know. And it shows up in the archaeology because all of a sudden you've got a lot of new settlements and stuff. The remainder, which constitute the vast majority, remain in the land. They become the Samaritans. They are the, what's called the Amharits, the people of the land, uh, the tax base. Now, that sort of frame that term. The people of the land are going to be a huge issue when they come back from exile. Syria attacks Judah. During the reign of King Hezekiah, Isaiah the prophet is there. Remember the Emmanuel oracle? A virgin shall conceive and give birth, you know. It's set in this time. Uh, we have the prism of Sennacherib, who basically says there, as for Hezekiah the Judeite, who did not submit to my yoke, I took 46 of his strong wall cities. And basically he just lays out there what he did to them, you know. And his favorite line is he, he bundled up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage, you know. He didn't take Jerusalem because a, a, a uh, plague broke out in his army. But he took everything else. Okay. After Israel is destroyed, all that's left is one tribe. Hence, we get the word Jews from the word Judah. Um, Judah stands alone for the next 150 years. We got two good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. One at the beginning, one near the end. Hezekiah is at the beginning. Josiah is at the end. We get the second wave of prophets including Jeremiah and Ezekiel both of whom lived through the destruction half their ministry is actually Ezekiel's actually called to be a prophet in after he's been hauled off he was a priest Josiah's reforms people think that the book of Deuteronomy probably came from northern Israel and was the book that Josiah found 
we got that famous uh, text in Second Kings where the high, the, the high priest is cleaning out the temple and they find this book of the law. Found meaning they didn't realize it was there. It had been there for some time. Uh, Deuteronomy centralizes worship in one location, which is exactly what Josiah's reform does. So if Josiah found the book of the law in the temple, and Josiah bases his reform, including only one temple, on that book, and the only book we've ever known about that, that actually argues for only one place to worship is the book of Deuteronomy, two and two and two is, what do you think he found? Most scholars said some form, probably an early form of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy, we get this. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. It's interesting that in Exodus, we have the same thing without the red part. Because of the red part, they can do this anywhere because they're traveling, right? They're coming from Mount Sinai, coming back. All of a sudden, the law is rewritten. Deuteronomy, second law. It's rewritten where you can only worship God one place, which is why every Jew during the life of Jesus has to go to Jerusalem during the Passover. Okay. Um, best guess is Deuteronomy was a version. Remember, the, the two countries split. It looks like that the law was edited in the northern kingdom, and that was the Deuteronomy book. When the northern kingdom fell, some of the priests took it to Jerusalem. It was probably in the temple for about a century, and when they were cleaning it, they found that and realized that this is indeed what they wanted to follow. That was six wing. I'm going to skip this, but there's evidence that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah thought the Deuteronomic reforms of Josiah were a bad idea. They both attack it. So I'll just let you read that a little bit uh, and sort of have fun with that uh, because it's real clear that they're very different. Judah's history as a nation comes to an end 10 years after the death of Josiah. Josiah is one of their great kings. He dies in a battle. 10 years later, the juggernaut called Babylon, which conquers Assyria, rolls <coughs> and just rolls in. We are going to have uh, three attacks by Babylon against Judah and Jerusalem in the period of 15 years. And when the dust settles, the nation of Israel is no more. And it lays the seeds uh, for the beginning of something even greater, something that we call Judaism or Second Temple Judaism, the world of Jesus. So hopefully you enjoyed 400 years and way too quick. <laughs>